You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Mm. I haven't uh, been living in New York very long. It's, in fact, I just realized this past week that it's been a year now. So I know some things, but there's still a lot of stuff that I just don't get or don't know. It's part of the problem of being new. I live about five blocks uh, east of here on 88th Street in between 1st and, uh, and York. And there's this little park over there um, that maybe you've been to, maybe you, you haven't. It's pretty small. It's only about like 10 blocks long and about a block wide. And I had never really been there for, for about the first half of the year that I lived here. But I would drive by it looking for parking or I would see it going somewhere. And there was this building right by the entrance, about a block and a half from my apartment. And I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that there were always tons of cop cars there. And they were taking up all the good parking spaces. So I thought, oh, maybe this is some like older building that they've repurposed into like a police outpost or precinct or whatever. And uh, so then I finally started going to the, the park and I would have to walk by this building and I looked at it a little closer and I realized there was like a bunch of security and, and all sorts of things surrounding it. And I was like, man, they must take this place really seriously. I still didn't know what it was though. Then a couple months ago, I, was, uh, I decided to actually look at the big plaque on the side of the building, and it turns out that it's the mayor's mansion. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And uh, as I started to think about it and realized that a block and a half from the small room that I live in, like many of you do, there is this mansion that a guy gets to live in, I started to covet my neighbor's house. We are uh, in the midst, or we're concluding today, our 10 to Life series. We've been going for the past 10 weeks now. Uh, we've been going over the 10 commandments. Uh, pastor Todd, our senior pastor, as well as several members of our church community have contributed to this series. And um, this is our, our final installment of it. So if you are all caught up with Game of Thrones, it's the season's over. You have no excuse to be binging that anymore. You're probably caught up with Orange is the New Black by now. You can binge watch this whole series, all 10 commandments, at avonhope.org. Okay? We should put an avonhope.org slash binge, I think. That'd be good. I'll work on that. Why are we doing a commandment series? Why have we done a commandment series, though, in the first place? It's a question worth asking because this has been done before. Christians, especially Adventists, have done their fair share of talking, their fair share of preaching about the Ten Commandments. Our identity, for better and for worse, as Christians, maybe even more so as Adventists, is tied up, is, is rooted in these Ten Commandments. I know that I have experienced more than one Adventist Ten Commandment evangelistic series. 
I know that um, in many states or, or in certain places across the country, it's Christians that are making sure that we get those Ten Commandment statues at those courthouses. It's Christians that know every detail that's wrong with the Ten Commandments movie in Charlton Heston. We know the Ten Commandments. We get it. They're part of us. They're important to us. You know, we make sure that people don't say, oh, my God, that they say, gosh, or goodness, or something. We know to make sure people know which day the fourth commandment is referring to. We understand, we get, we take seriously the Ten Commandments. If you didn't know, we have an official purpose here at Church of the Advent Hope. This is a statement um, that our leaders and, and uh, staff put together. Um, and we've had it for a little while now. You've probably heard us talk about it, even if you didn't know we were talking about it. We try to, like, work it in at all times, um, if possible. And every week at our staff meetings and, and every month at our board meetings, we go over it together and we, like, quiz to see who's got it memorized by now. I, I have all the pieces. I just never get in the right order. So I'm going to read for you our purpose, uh, in case you didn't know, you can get it clearly. To live in loving, worshipful relationship with God and in loving community with one another, empowered by the Holy Spirit to participate in God's reconciling and restorative work through Jesus Christ of healing broken relationships between God and all people and between all members of the human family. This eloquent run-on sentence is why we exist. We want everything we do here as a community of faith to be informed by this purpose. So we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, seeing not only what they meant to the people that they were originally given to, learning not only how Christians have interacted with these commands over time, but seeing how they help us enter into better relationships with God, how they help heal broken relationships, and how they help us cultivate deeper community with one another. Back to Exodus 2017. I don't think it was written for 2017, but it's a cute little thing. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's an interesting, kind of unusual word, covets. We don't typically use it. We don't throw it around in our day-to-day -day lingo. Covet means to desire something, to crave something, to yearn to possess something. This word, this commandment, is about how and what we think. It seems that the first nine commandments are more concerned with our actions. But this one, the tenth, is about our thoughts. See, thinking of other gods is not prohibited. Some sort of action is required to put other gods before Yahweh. Some sort of rejection of God is necessary to break that commandment. The command is not to think restful thoughts on the Sabbath. The command is to rest. It's not enough to think about honoring your parents. 
you have to actually do something to honor them. Similarly, thoughts of theft, murder, adultery are not prohibited by the Ten Commandments. The final commandment is the only one that addresses our thoughts. But why do our thoughts matter so much, specifically this type of thought? Why does it matter? Why does it get the same level, the same uh, weight as these other commandments dealing with our actions? You could easily make the argument that the Tenth Commandment is unnecessary. Commandments 5 through 7 already deal with the natural end of coveting. They deal with the actions that coveting leads to. Murder, adultery, and theft can all be traced back to a seed of covetousness. So either we don't need those three, or we can get rid of this one. Maybe God just wanted a round number, and so he threw this one at the end. This may be the only commandment about thought, but it's not the only commandment concerned with ownership. If Moses came down from the mountain and showed you the tablets, you could easily see how much of it is about ownership. On the Sabbath, the people and animals you would have owned are supposed to rest. Children belonged to their parents. Dishonoring those parents would be an affront to that ownership belonging relationship. Do not murder. That life is not yours to take, does not belong to you. Do not defile or destroy the property of another man. In the case of the seventh commandment, that property is his wife by committing adultery with her. Do not steal someone else's property. Personal property, ownership, these have been a bigger part of these commands than we may typically think. See, because nowadays, that's not really the context we put them into. We rest on the Sabbath, and we would like to give other, opportunity, uh, other people the opportunity to join in that rest, but we don't have any people we own or livestock we own that we are making rest with us. We still want to honor our parents. We want to have our children honor us. But we're each individuals. We hope that honoring our parents will help us grow into better individuals. We hope that having our children honor us will help them grow. But we do it not because they own us or we own them. Many of us see killing of any stripe, even the type of different uh, killing condoned in the Bible, we see those as wrong, not just murder. We don't engage in inappropriate sexual practices, not because our partner might belong to somebody else, but because we want to experience the fullness of loving relationships that would be damaged by breaking that commandment. In fact, it's really only stealing and coveting that we'd still put into the context of ownership today. But the initial ways that these commandments were kept and thought of didn't start to change now or in the last few years or in the last couple generations. In his life and teaching, Jesus is already showing the relational reasons for the, for the law. Jesus teaches the importance of thoughts for how we keep more than just the 10th commandment. 
Jesus is pulling us away from the importance of ownership. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew, he says things like this. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. He continues a little bit later. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Going even further. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is taking us away from the concept of ownership. He tells the rich young ruler to give away all his possessions. He tells his followers that they must despise and leave their families to follow him. He tells his disciples to give up their entire livelihoods to join him. Following Christ frees us from the bondage of ownership, both of being owned and of owning. In his body, there is neither slave nor free. In the earliest iteration of his church, believers pooled their resources together so that everyone was taken care of. Jesus wants to rid us of the importance of ownership so much that he tells us to stop storing up our treasures here completely. Instead, store up treasure in his kingdom, a place bereft of ownership, a place where those treasures do not exist because the treasures we own are not the things worth storing up. So, if you're an ancient Israelite, or you don't really feel like following Jesus, but you are reading the Ten Commandments, just don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet because it'll make you unhappy, and it will probably damage your relationship with that person. However, if you're a Christian, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to experience the freedom of his kingdom, do not covet anything even the things belonging to you. The commandments matter to Jesus. They matter so much that he's taking them to the edge, to the limit. Not to set an impossible standard that will make us feel guilty whenever we're angry or make us feel ashamed whenever we yearn for something, but to show us the pointlessness of relying on ourselves to keep us from anger to show us the futility of counting on ourselves, not to covet. In Jesus, the commandment is more than to cease coveting what belongs to our neighbor. It's more than to stop yearning for ownership. It's a command to desire him, to yearn for him above all else. A command to put aside the small-mindedness of what belongs to whom but also an invitation to come out of worrying whether or not we're coveting or not. 
Jesus is the life the ten take us to. The gospel is the good news that although the Ten Commandments show us the way to live in loving, worshipful relationship with God and in loving community with one another, we are not going to succeed at achieving that. Coveting Jesus will achieve that. Desiring his kingdom will achieve that. Yearning for him will achieve that. The gospel is the good news that there is a God that yearns for us so deeply that he would take upon himself all of the guilt, shame, death that comes with breaking the commandments to show us the depth of his love, to invite us into the all-inclusive, never-dividing kingdom. See, because outside of his kingdom, to have value, to seek happiness, to show purpose, we must have, we must possess. But having only leads to division. It separates us into the haves and the have-nots. Yearning for, coveting, always brings division. It isolates us. I covet my neighbor's house. My neighbor covets his power. The powerless covet financial freedom. The wealthy covet safety. The secure covet excitement. The adventurer covets experience. The old covet youth. And on and on. These past few weeks in the public life of our country, we've been able to see the division that coveting breeds and the unity that not having creates. In Charlottesville and in other places across the country, we saw a group of people scared of losing what they have. The anger, violence, and hate that coveting produces. This was not the first and it won't be the last time that we see this. It's not the first and it won't be the last time that we do this. In Houston, just this week, we saw a church coveting what it has to a degree that it denied shelter for the frightened and homeless until it was sufficiently shamed into opening its doors. But also in Houston, we saw a city deprived of having. The hurricane, the rain, the flooding took away ownership. It destroyed treasures. And in that void, we saw emergency workers pulling shifts of ever-increasing length to heal their neighbors. We saw countless volunteers with boats lined up to rescue their neighbors. We saw mosques and other houses of worship open themselves up immediately to their neighbors who were seeking shelter. We saw and will continue to see resources poured in from the haves around the country and around the world to these particular neighbors that have not. This is the life Jesus brings. A kingdom where it doesn't take unprecedented disaster for neighbors to unite. Where we don't need an emergency to break the divide between having and not. There's only one thing, one person that we yearn for, that we desire, that we covet, who can unite us. There's only one who will free us from the chains of coveting,
there's only one who is sharing the treasures of his kingdom, of which there is no end, and to which all are welcome. Thank you, Jesus, for commanding us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for sacrificing for us. Thank you for freeing us. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing your kingdom to this earth, flinging open the gates, and welcoming each of us into the boundless community of your love. Amen.